Welcome to the In Doubt Podcast, where we explore the challenging topics that young adults often face. Each week, we talk with guests who help answer questions of faith, life, and culture, connecting them to our daily experiences and God's Word. For more info on In Doubt, visit indoubt.ca or indoubt.com. Hi everyone, it's great to be with you today. My name is Ryan, your In Doubt host, and today I'm very glad to have Rosaria Butterfield with me. She is a author and has been a speaker and professor and has been able to add to a very compelling conversation about identity, belonging, and value. In this first episode with Rosaria, I was able to talk with her about her very own personal story. And so we get into some topics on what it means to be valued and how we tend to search for dignity. In today's culture, what often happens is people define themselves by their sexuality, and they label their identity as either gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, straight, married, or single. And I was able to ask Rosaria about the origins of why we do this, where these labels come from, and how we tend to view ourselves. Rosaria has a very unique perspective with her history and her past, and so it would be great for you to listen in and hear what she has to say. Today on this episode of In Doubt, we have Rosaria Butterfield, who has her PhD from Ohio State University. She's an author, speaker, pastor's wife, homeschool mom, and former tenured professor of English and Women's Studies. She is the author of The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert and The Gospel Comes with a House Key. Rosaria, so good to have you with us today. Thanks for being with us. Thank you, Ryan. It's a, it's a joy to be here. Great. Well, you know, just even as I've read that little intro of who you are, um, I'm thinking of your story. And, you know, if you would have thought all those things under your name 20 years ago, uh, you probably would have thought somebody reading that bio of you is crazy or insane. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. I would have felt like I was, you know, had been abducted by some alien force or right. something. Right. Pastor's wife, yeah. homeschool oh, yeah. mom. Right. That's crazy. That's not you. Yeah. No. So, so what's a, what is a little bit of your story? Like, what? how did you come to faith? Uh, would you be able to paint a little bit of a picture of that for me? Sure. Absolutely. In so many ways, I came to faith through the faithful hospitality of a neighbor. So I lived in New York at Syracuse University, where I was a professor of English and women's studies. I also held joint appointments in a burgeoning gay and lesbian studies program, which is sort of the old way of saying queer theory and peace studies and peace activism. And I was very happily partnered with my lesbian partner. Our lives were not in a shambles. We were happy. Um, we were good citizens. We ran a golden retriever rescue. We were members of a Unitarian Universalist church. Um, if somebody had said that we were bad people, I, I, you know, I would have just said, well, you know, here's my life. You know, you, you look at it. So, so after I was uh, tenured or Tenure takes a long time. So after I've had everything in line, you know, tenure was on the tracks, I decided to start a book on the religious right and their politics of hatred against people like me. I mean, basically, I just wanted to understand why people like you, no, no offense intended, found people like me uh, immoral, um, untrustworthy, unsafe to be around children, you know, and on the list goes. And so in the process of writing that book, 
the Lord provided me with a very unlikely friend, a Christian pastor who is also my neighbor and whose house, strangely enough, functioned at least in its exterior forms a lot like my house. So this is New York. This is the uh, LGBTQ community. And this is the 90s. AIDS is ravaging our community. Everyone's home in my community was open one night a week. Just to talk about you and life and AIDS and suicide and drugs and culture and care. And my partner and I, our home was open on Thursday nights. And strangely enough, when I met Ken and his wife, Floyd Smith, their house functioned in a really similar way. They had all these Christians in their home and all these neighbors in their home all the time. And so when he and I met, you know, hospitality was very much our our connection. I wasn't afraid to go to his house and eat a meal and talk. And he wasn't afraid to come to mine. And so we did that. And while I'm working on this book, I'm also reading the Bible because I'm an English professor. I don't get to just go and interview people. I have to actually read the book. And um, and Ken's, you know, he's a good, good reformed pastor. He's happy that anybody's reading the book for any reason at all. <laughs> you know? so, so he he's helping me along. And, and it's a long story. But after about two years of of reading the Bible seven times through and meeting with Ken and Floyd, probably eating hundreds of meals at their home, the Bible just started to be, become bigger than I. And when. When I committed my life to Jesus, I didn't actually stop feeling like a lesbian. Um, What happened was I was converted out of unbelief. I was not converted out of homosexuality. That was a different conversation, and that's a different story, and we can talk about that if you want to. Um, It's all messy. It's all raw. (laughs) Um, And it's all good. It's all good because the Lord uses us in our... In, in the complexity that makes us us. And that's why when, when I talk to Christians around the, the, the nations about living fully for Christ, the, the most dangerous thing to do is think that you need to somehow be different. What you need is to love Jesus more than your sin. What you need is to be sober about sin, knowing that Original sin distorts you and condemns you and actual sin distracts you and enlists you and indwelling sin manipulates you. And that's true for you and me and every Christian on the planet. The only person who's made peace with sin is someone who does not know that the blood of Christ was the payment for it. So before I was a Christian, I was not struggling with being a lesbian. I wasn't struggling with with guilt or, you know, or any of that. I thought that was just wacky. But with faith comes responsibility. And with responsibility often comes the burden of how to hate your sin without hating yourself. So that's a lot of to, to talk about. But, but the long story was I came to faith because I had a very faithful neighbor whose home was open all the time. The people in that home didn't all share the same last name, didn't all share the same worldview, didn't all share the same nation or skin color. But at a certain point in the evening, Ken Smith would very winsomely but very effectively 
distribute Bibles, not to stop the conversation, but to deepen it. And I learned that the big difference between my home and Ken Smith's home wasn't the love or the care for your community, wasn't all the people that showed up with all of their needs. It was that Ken had a God who was alive to whom he could appeal. And I had my good intentions. It's mm. a beautiful, beautiful story. And I think a beautiful picture. I think one of the things that sticks out to me is just the the progression of like being patient. Mm-hmm. Right? Right. Like it yeah. wasn't like you stepped into Ken's house and he was like, okay, now that you're here, I've got a 30-minute <laughs> sermon for you. Let's go. Right. Yeah, I never would have come back. Right. Ever. Right. And I would have written about him in my next book, yes. not in the ways I have. Right. Totally. <laughs> and I think that's one of the, the burdens that a lot of people think is that I need to have all of the answers. Crazy. I need to know how to respond in season and out of season in every single way with ultimate truth and ultimate authority, citing everything back to God's word that, I, that I'm dialoguing with with the non-believer. And what I'm hearing you say is, okay, yes, God's word is our, our root, our source, our authority, yet how we relate to other people is in the messiness of our lives. Right. And it's huge. If if you cannot, if your words are stronger than your relationships, you're going to hurt people, even with all of your good intentions. Yeah. I like how you say that. If your words are not as strong as your relationships. Yeah. Your relationships need to be at least as strong as your words. So can you expand on that a little bit? Uh, absolutely. You know, it used to be maybe you know, in the seventies when I wasn't a Christian and you probably weren't born, I don't, you know, but nope. in, you know, it, it, when it was the, you know, right. The, the years of the evangelicals, I think it made a lot of sense that you would just go to your neighbor and say, Hey, I'm having a Bible study. I want to introduce you to Jesus. Jesus has saved you from your sins. And it made sense that people would respond to that. But today people do not believe they need saving from their sins. They believe they need saving from you. You know, I mean, if that's, and and if you, you're living under a rock, if you don't know that. And so what you need to remember is that what the, you know, the big lack, the big, the big heartfelt void of today is the knowledge that you are made in the image of God, that inside each and every human being, every person who identifies as gay or lesbian or trans, any person who is of any creed or, or nation or, or um, ability or disability, every single human being has the image of God inside of us. And that is what separates us from animals and from the heavenly beings, from angels. But it's also what gives us our dignity. And, and it's only in Christ that we can reflect that image in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. But even before Christ enters into your life, you are precious, and you are irreplaceable, and you have a world clamoring for dignity. What is the, what is the groundswell of the LGBTQ rights demand right now is dignity. And nothing can give that like the gospel. And, you know, it's really at the end of Romans, Romans one twenty six, that makes it really clear that if you cannot get a blessing from God, you will demand it from men. 
And so Christians should not be surprised that uh, there's been a political groundswell that has a religious zeal attached to it. The propensity for that is right out of Romans 1. What we need to do is not match that political propensity with political rancor, but we need to go to the root. And the root is you are made in the image of God. And so recently when a neighbor of mine, when her 30-year lesbian relationship fell apart, And she came and she said, I'm destroyed. I want to talk to you, but I don't want to hear about your God. I was able with complete good conscience say, I want to hear what's going on with you. But I want you to know one thing. Jesus never treats his daughters like this. That was not an opportunity to rebuke. She was broken. That was an opportunity to figure out how we could be some earthly good. And so it wasn't hard to figure that out. You know, she needed a place to stay. She needed an apartment. Those are, you know, if she needed meals. I mean, come on, if the church can't function, that, that's the, that, you know, churches, you push a button, right? And the church goes into that mode. Do you know how many of our neighbors would just benefit from that? We don't, we don't withhold love because people have brought their own crises upon themselves. That's the tragic condition, and that's the human condition. And it was while we were yet in sin that Christ died for us. So we don't come in the name of Christ the judge. We come in the name of Christ the Savior. But before we can talk about matters of salvation, we do need to talk about what it means to be an image bearer of a holy God. And while that sounds very nice, it sounds like, oh, phew, that's not complex, That's actually one of the most complex ideas around. I mean, for example, when I came to Christ, I need to figure out if being a lesbian was how I was or who I was. And it's really image bearing that answers that question. You see, we will all be thumbprinted by Adam one way or another. And anybody who thinks that he or she is not is a danger to himself and to the church. So we are all born with Adam's thumbprint one way or another. But we live in a political world that says, no, 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 no. Gay is who I am, not how I am. And it's image bearing that actually challenges that. So on the one hand, while this is a wonderful message and it it speaks to the felt needs of everybody, it's also going to really push a lot of buttons about worldview. And so we need to be ready for that. Yeah, and I, I find that very interesting, this this distinction between how I am and who I am. Right? Mm-hmm. Where did that come from? Like, where did yeah. this idea of I am my, you know, my sexuality yeah. or I am my situation, right? Wh- whoever right. you are, it's like, oh, I am single or I am married or I am right. this. Right. It's like, where did this identity come from? Has it always been there? Like, Oh, no, I'm so glad you actually, actually. When you read my bio, there is one book you didn't mention. Okay. And it's actually, and I write about it in this book. It's called Openness Unhindered, Further Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert on Sexual Identity and Union with Christ. And I wrote that in 2015 in response to this question, because 2015, of course, was the year that the, in the United States, the Obergefell decision legalized gay marriage in every, all of the 50 states. Part of how that happened was through a worldview that says 
this is who I am. And so I wanted, I'd spent, you know, years myself wrestling with that question. And so I wanted to study that. And it, it actually began in the 19th century. Um, it it uh, actually late 18th century. It began when the classical movement moved into the romantic movement. Those are those are worldviews. Those are those are political ideas. It has a lot to do with art and, and culture and philosophy. Uh, and um, and basically the idea was that your feelings were a form of epistemology or truth telling. And then Freud really, he himself is part of the romantic movement. So Freud developed a study of human sexuality based on the idea that the object of your love, of the object of your sexual love, is the proof of who you really enduringly and ontologically are. And that stands in opposition to the Genesis 127 understanding that, no, you are gods. You are made in the image of God. Having been born after Genesis 3, you happen to come with a thumbprint of Adam. And having come after Genesis 3, you come with the responsibility of dealing with that thumbprint of Adam. You are not a victim because of Adam's sin. No, you love the darkness, says John 3. You love it. I love it. And so it's only in, in, in union with Christ that any of us can put some daylight between our identity and our sexual desire. Because it isn't just a homosexual issue. This isn't just a gay issue. There's a writer named Michael Hannon, and I love the way he says it. He says, if, if homosexuality binds you, B-I-N-D-S, binds you to sin, heterosexuality blinds you to sin. And I think that's spot on. The other question is, why did the church prefer this 19th century understanding of personhood over, you know, the biblical one? And that's a that has a theological story to it also. Right. But. And I think one of the things that that I'm I'm confronted with is this reality that, you know, there are many people inside and outside of the church who have beliefs about themselves that are more concerned with how than, than who. So it's like how I function in my faith is more important than who I am in my faith as a son or daughter of, of God. And I think, you know, even as you explain this epistemological and ontological, so like ontology meaning like uh, what I believe to be true about myself, well, actually, ontology meaning who you inherently are from before the foundations of the world. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. Ontology is being. Epistemology is thinking, and it's that it's that's the issue of that. What is true? What mm-hmm. is the truest of the true? Okay, so what can be known about what is true would be yes. epistemology, and then what right. is true would be ontology. Yes. Right. Yes. Great. And I think one of the, the things I, that I'm curious about is, you know, wherever we're coming at in this conversation, from whatever background we have, opening our door to people who are different than us and have different views and different perspectives and different values might naturally uh, bring up ideas of fear of how do I sit across a table with somebody that I don't know what they're going to say. And so a question I have for you is like, what would you say to someone who thinks it's a great idea to open their door and have a dinner, but 
is just paralyzed in fear of what to say or anxiety or all right. these things? What would you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's a great question. I mean, I and I think, you know, I, I, I'll tell you that what you just described, though, that fills me with joy. You know, and I think about getting into a group and I, I have no idea what people are going to say and where people are coming from. And I have the opportunity to be a first gospel contact, maybe not tonight, but maybe two years from now. And I, and I have the opportunity to figure out how to be some earthly good to my neighbors who don't know Christ. And so I just I just see this this huge display of Christian joy in front of me. But and that might be a good question, too, that why? You know, temperament is sometimes learned. Is there something about our church culture, something about our people-pleasing culture? What is it that makes us fear dining with strangers? Because Jesus did that. It's certainly not because we're following Christ. You know, if you're following Christ, you're not, you're not afraid to dine with strangers. You're not even afraid for other people to think ill of you because you're dining with strangers. You're not afraid of that. Um... But, but I would say that we have become too pragmatic in the Christian life, that we've, we've come, we, you know, we tend to look at the Bible as a big book with a lot of propositional truth, instead of seeing that, yes, there's much propositional truth in the Bible, but it's a living book, and it's meant to liberate the captives. And when you are, when you're deep in your sin, the Bible uses the word deceived, and one of the root understandings of deception, to be deceived, isn't just to be wrong. You know, you, you made a mistake in your crossword puzzle. You're wrong. Well, big deal. To be deceived is to be taken captive by an evil force to do its bidding. Now, if that doesn't fill you with compassion, I don't know what would. But I think one, so two reasons I think we're afraid, if, if we're afraid. And I, I think a lot of people aren't afraid. I think, I think we're just so used to thinking we're afraid that we act like we are. I think a lot of people think, hey, this sounds like fun. I get to talk to people who are really different than I am. But, but if you are afraid, then, you know, you might be afraid because you're, you're people pleasing and you're afraid about what the, you know, what the Joneses will think. Or you might be afraid because you actually think somebody else's sin will hurt you. Um, actually, the only sin that's going to undo you is your own. You know, when, when Paul says, I'm the chief of all sinners, that's not just because he really did some bad things. It wasn't because there was a poll taken and he was nominated. Yes, you're the chief of all sinners. It's because he knows the only sin that's going to shipwreck him is his own. So, so there's that. And another reason is you might be thinking to yourself, I haven't thought through how to manage this with my children at the table. I haven't thought through how to manage this with my aged mother at the table. Or um, if you're if if uh, you're married, I haven't thought through how my spouse and I are going to relate to these differences. So so the first is, you know, deal with your own sin, deal with the compassion that you ought to have for unbelievers. But the latter is do some homework. You know, I know people who spend all kinds of time doing lots of preparation to get their home in order. Bag that and get your heart in order. You know, don't worry about the cat hair on the couch. It's not going to kill anybody. And get your relationships in order. Have a plan for what you're going to do when your neighbor discloses something really important that you need to move in with Christian love. And at the same time, maybe the kiddos need a little 
interpretation on the matter. But, you know, I'm going to tell you, my kids are are older now. All of them are are either, you know, 20s, 30s, married with kids or teenagers in the house. And they've been raised like this. And one of the things that will never happen if you raise your children like this, you will never be able to pull out Jesus as a silly little prop for Sunday morning or Wednesday. They will know that Jesus Christ saves sinners just like us. And they will see people come to faith, not because it's easy, but because it's true and it's hard. And that will be vital. That will be such a good investment for them. So I think sometimes we think we protect our children by sheltering them. How much shelter can you give a child in a post-Christian world? Not enough. So those are some of the things I think we need to think about. Yeah, because eventually that, that bubble is going to burst, right? If, if, especially right. with children, if they're not exposed. And I think this is what a lot of young adults face is I grew up Christian, Christian family, Christian school maybe. You know, I went to church. I did all the Christian things. And then I'd have my first year university, second year university. And one of the, some of the challenges primarily are I don't know what to think, but deeper, I don't know how to live. I don't know how to disagree with people who are different than me and still remain true to who I am in God. Right. And I also think that there's a sense of betrayal that my parents and my church didn't tell me the whole truth. They told me my lesbian neighbors are sinning, but they didn't prepare me for what it would be like when they're the nicest people on the block. And the gospel prepares you for that. Jesus wants you to love people for real and have them in your home. And I get all kinds of criticism on this about how my poor children have been, you know, just subjected, well, to what? To me as a mother. Let's just start there. (laughs) Right? If your gospel doesn't prepare you to see the sin and appreciate that that person's the nicest person on the block because of common grace— then you don't have 100% grace and 100% truth. And every time I'm on some podcast, you haven't done it and I appreciate it, where somebody says, how do you balance truth and grace? You don't, because you can't live with 50% grace and 50% truth. You don't balance it. You want 100% grace and 100% truth. And if that blows things up, great. Hallelujah. Let's see what happens in the rubble. Thank you for joining us on this episode of In Doubt with Rosaria Butterfield. Uh, You can't follow her on social media, but you can get her latest book and find her on her website. And her latest book is The Gospel Comes with a House Key. I want to remind you that In Doubt exists to bring the good news of Jesus into everyday issues of life, faith, and culture. We want to encourage you and equip you to engage with the tough questions of our time in a way that honors God. If In Doubt has encouraged you and you are passionate to help others grow in the truth, we want to welcome you to partner with us financially. As we continue to provide resources, we depend on your generosity and the partnership of people just like you to communicate the good news of Jesus to a world that needs him. You can also find out more about In Doubt at indoubt.ca if you're in Canada and indoubt.com if you're in the United States. We'd love to stay connected with you on Instagram at indoubtca.com. 
And if you'd like to forward us any conversations that you would like for us to have, feel free to connect with us at info at indoubt.ca. Next week, we have Rosario with us again as we do part two of our conversation, this time focusing more on hospitality and how we can engage with those in our world all around us. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to hear more, subscribe on iTunes and Spotify or visit us online at indoubt.ca or indoubt.com. We're also on social media, so make sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.